Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Remy Joseph Salesbury, who is from the University of Manchester, where he's a presidential fellow, about his award-winning book, Black, Mixed-Race Men, Transatlanticity, Hybridity, and Post-Racial Resilience. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, this this is such a, an interesting book. Uh, and immediately, like straight away, you can see why um it's got so much attention and, and, and been been given such uh, kind of prestige because I, I think it's both that combination of, of academically important and also just really interesting you know, helping to explain kind of contemporary society both in the states actually and, and here in in britain and i guess the place to kick off is re- with a really sort of obvious question about what was your kind of like interest in the book I, I know sort of you know early on you you foreground your own experiences uh growing up being uh, a football fan you know kind of um and and your sort of um early to, to to teenage life as as a way of situating the text yeah um so it's always hard to pinpoint where these ideas first started to take form. Um, and a few people have asked me about this recently. I can remember quite early on as maybe an 11-year-old ensuring that my, my local football team, we all warmed up in the kick racism out of football T-shirts. Um, and that's the earliest earliest thing I can remember where I've taken up this interest in race and racism. And then f- for all the ills of my secondary school curriculum I, I really engaged with this this poem that I start the book with by John Agard, Half Cast um, and that really got me thinking about popular ideas about mixed race identities and also my own my own experience um, and then the more that I read and engaged with the literature and mixed race studies I was a little um disappointed felt that some of it didn't represent my experience or the experiences of my friends or or probably the the experiences of of my generation um so i really wanted to speak back to that and um understand other people's experiences situate those alongside my own and um, maybe offer a slightly more generous, less stereotypical view of what mixed race identity means in contemporary times. And I guess, crucially, the literature wasn't doing the job of representing what your interviewees were, were telling you. And, and one of the things that's crucial, actually, is the choice of interviewees and the methods. And, and it'd be good to um, to hear about the process of, of selecting, you know, what I guess is quite a big project in a way to deal with um, this uh, transatlantic um, set um, of interviewees and participants. Yeah, so I think I I was motivated by a desire to challenge these stereotypes that mixed race people are 
inherently confused and um, caught between communities. So I think that really that underpinned the project and probably impacted upon my methodological approach. So um, I was inspired by critical race theory, which I, I think enables us to pinpoint race and racism in places that it's not obviously seen. And I, I wanted to look at the UK and the US because partly I, did, I didn't want to take national boundaries for granted to just close off the UK and see something that's being particular to this context. Um, and the US, um, I think there are, there are a lot of similarities in terms of the histories of race and racism. Of course, there are a lot of differences as well, but I thought it would be an interesting comparator. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think maybe one of the limitations of the book is is covering two such vast countries in the UK and the US. On the one hand, I see that as a bit of a limitation, and I think people like Chantelle Lewis and Caris Campion now, they're, they're doing really important granular work that looks at the impact of space in, in very localized communities. But I also think I also think there's a there's a strength in um moving beyond what what scholars call methodological nationalism, trying to pick out these similarities and show how um experiences of blackness and mixedness transcend national boundaries. Um, so, so I spoke to, um, I think, 30, 30 people, 18 to 30 years old, half of them in the UK and half of them in the US. Um, and they were, you know, semi-structured interviews we met. Most interviews were around an hour and, and um, sometimes more. I think the longest was five hours. To just, yeah. I think a lot of people really, really enjoyed the opportunity to speak and they said that this these spaces were missing from from their time at school and i was really really struck by the similarities not only the similarities between the two contexts but also the references to what was going on in the other spaces and this particularly i think the uk participants referenced what was going on in the us but the the flow of popular culture um also ideas around Black Lives Matter. So when I did the interviews, I think the, I, w- I was around Baltimore when the Baltimore uprisings were kicking off. So th- there was a lot going on and, and there was a, it, it felt that there was a bit of a two-way flow of ideas. that Two-way but slightly unequal in terms of the UK being slightly more aware of what's going on in the US than the other way around. You mentioned that mixedness and this i think is 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 like you know a a kind of central concept that um um animates both you know the research and and the book and it'd be good to know like what you actually mean when you're talking about black black mixed race men and at the same time early on in the book you introduce one of the most interesting concepts i've i've come across for a while actually post-racial resilience um so i wonder if you'd like take them in turn for me like um, what's the sort of um, category here of a black mixed race? But also at the same time, like how do you interweave that with this idea of 
post-racial resilience. I mean, I, I might have the, the wrong take here, but it struck me that it was almost kind of impossible to separate that um, sociological demographic identity category of black mis- mixed race from this kind of more, I suppose, experiential uh, idea about post-racial resilience. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's absolutely right. And a lot of what I talk about is the fluidity of these identities. Um, in terms of, so the, so the term that I use, black mixed race, um, you know, terminology is fraught with difficulty. I, I've been challenged on the use of this term and I've seen people challenged on alternatives. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think we can settle on a term that is, without its problems and you know one of the criticisms I often face is that I am perpetuating essentialist ideas about race by using this term but the reason I I use mixed race rather than something like mixed heritage was because it was race racism and racialization that I wanted to pinpoint it was the way that race shaped the experiences uh, of those that I was speaking to that I was interested in, but also because it's the term the the people I spoke to use. It is the term that I, I still think when you're out and about in everyday conversation, mixed race is the term that's most intelligible. Um, and in terms of my recruitment, I used a range of different terms. So uh, biracial, mixed race, also, I, I put on some of the posters born to um, born born to parents, uh, one black parent and one white parent, or um, have parents from different racial backgrounds. A range of different terms to try and capture um, the diversity of, of experiences and identifications of this particular population. So, most simply, in terms of who I spoke to. The majority had one black parent and one white parent. There were some that had just one black grandparent or just one white grandparent, but and also one with two um, mixed race parents who they each had a black and a white parent. So that was the that was the the population. And I used the term black mixed race rather than just mixed race to kind of point to the ways in which the men I spoke to felt they were identified. So they felt that they were often seen as black and mixed race, often simultaneously, sometimes situationally. Um, and and they, were, they were proud to be, often proud to be able to identify in both of these ways. So I think black mixed race pushes against seeing black identities and mixed race identities as, as separate entities. Um, I think you, you asked about post-racial resilience. I yeah, yeah. So I, I really it, it maybe makes more sense for me to talk about the post-racial in the first instance, and I really take this idea from thinkers like particularly David Theo Goldberg, also Alana Lentin and Eduardo Bonilla Silva, and I use it to to refer to describe the racial conditions in which I think we, we live. Um, and it's 
I think it defines a, a, a hegemonic belief that racism is a thing of the past, that we've overcome, set is overcome, it's racist history. And I think we see it most obviously in the election of Barack Obama. If you, you look at the headlines in the US media the day after the election, it was very, very self-congratulatory that, you know, the US is a liberal nation, it's moved away from its history of enslavement and now it's so liberal and so welcoming that it can elect a black man to president. And we see it we see it here in the UK with Meghan Markle that we we have a person of colour in our royal family and we also saw it a little bit with Jessica Ennis Hill around the Olympics as well. Um and and these individual forms of symbolism are taken as an example or taken to show that racism no longer exists in society. So the basic idea is that if Obama can be elected as president, how can we have racism? Or, um, you know, if, if there's a black person in our royal family, how can racism be a thing? Um, and I think it, this idea that we've overcome racism makes the experiences of people of colour increasingly difficult. So those, those racial conditions, they continue. We still see them in rates of exclusion. We still see them in policing. We still see them in all areas of society, but they're, they're just denied. Racism is a thing of the past. So if a young black boy is excluded from school, we no longer have racism as an explanation because racism is a thing of, a, of the past. Therefore, the explanation is that that young black boy is at fault. His behavior is the problem. Why Obama can do it, why can this young black boy not stay in school and become president and of course you know the, when we really look at it, these these kind of ideas are ridiculous but but this is the, the dominant way that i think we we now think about race and racism in society um, and i think the post-racial allows racism and white supremacy to endure it serves a function it's through the deniability of racism that racism continues um, so I, I'm basically suggesting that racism has changed shape a little bit. It's become more deniable. Okay, so, and then if we, we think about resilience, the reason I use this concept of resilience um, in the sociological sense is that it enables me to show agency. And it also enables me to situate the experiences of my participants in a long continuum of resilience and resistance in black communities. It also brings into the conversation those forces against which one must be resilient. So um, it enables me to show how racism and white supremacy impact upon individuals and how those individuals respond to those forces. And it, so to bring, to bring this concept of resilience into conversation with the idea of the post-racial, for much of history, the forces 
the people of color have needed to be resilient against have been visible. So we think of Jim Crow, slavery, colonization. Um, they've been visible forces. But now the deniability of racism means that people are needing to be resilient against things that are thought not to exist. Uh, so resilience takes on a characteristically different nature in these times. Uh, but I'm, I use the concept to try and highlight the ways in which black mixed race men respond to um, and resist these pressures that are denied. And I'm going to, in case I'm, I'm rambling a little bit, I'm just going to read the, the definition that I come to in the book. Um, and so I, I start with the dictionary definition of um, resilience, and then I bring in this these ideas about race and racism. And I, the first definition I give is this, the capacity to withstand and or recover quickly from racist and racialized difficulties that are denied. And secondly, the ability of one's sense of self to remain in or spring back into shape amidst threats that are deniable. Um, it's a form of elasticity. So it, it captures the ways in which uh, black mixed race men maintain their sense of self, their sense of identity, even when those identities are under threat and those threats are deniable. Um, and I realise that that probably sounds like quite a lot if people haven't read the book, but hope maybe when we... Uh, talk later and go through a couple of examples that might be able to illustrate it a little bit. Yeah, I mean that that runs right the way through the book. Almost in in every example is you know it's a perfect um, shot of that kind of like duality and and the really like one that people will be really familiar with, um, both in terms of like um, popular culture, um, in terms of uh, you know maybe discussions. Uh, Facebook or, or Twitter or whatever is how um, particular, I guess, kind of senses of privilege and control over bodies uh, manifest. And the really obvious thing is quite late on in, in the book uh, where you're talking about microaggressions and the, the experiences um, of, of your participants is hair. And the, the way that hair is like regulated in particular ways, the way that people, you know, like seemingly think uh, that hair is a site for, um, you know, just kind of being grabbed and played with and messed about with. Um, and, you know, to really kind of bring this out, I, I sort of highlighted from, uh, I think it's the fourth chapter, Max, Jake, Trent and, and, and Luke, your discussion of, of how um, their hair is like at once, you know, a really obvious expression of themselves, and, you know, um, but also is something where they are, you know, kind of assaulted, insulted and, and, and invalidated. Um, and I think those four experiences and that discussion of hair is a really great way to, to crystallize what you've been talking about in terms of post-racial resilience. Yeah. Um, so hair, hair came up an awful lot in the interviews and it was really, really significant for a lot of the people that I spoke to. They, it often impacted upon the ways people were seen by the rest of society, the ways in which people were racialized, 
So we often, we talk about skin color as the primary marker, but I, I would say that hair is, is not far behind that. Um, and, and the men that I spoke to, they placed an awful lot of value on it as well. It meant an awful lot to them. They saw it as racially and culturally significant and symbolic. Um, and, and in these conversations where they in terms of the hair, they're, they're reflecting particularly on their, their time at school. Um, and they talk about the, the, the sense amongst their white peers that they, they can touch their hair and place pencils in their hair and all sorts of things like that. Um, and, and sometimes this was, this was, uh, relatively polite and something that um, was seen to be in relatively good faith, but over a period of time it became increasingly annoying and irritating um, to the men. Uh, and they saw this as a, a form of racism. So I think in the un, under post-racial conditions, we would see hair as something that's relatively neutral, the touching of hair, it could happen to anyone and it's not got any great significance. But for these men who understand their hair to be part of their blackness, this was an affront to, to their identity. It was a form of degradation and um, maybe a bit of a microcosm for the racialized power dynamics within the school that, that white peers were able to touch their hair without any um, without any kind of reprimand um, from, from the school authorities and I think this this shows the form that racism's taking post-racial times so it's not that people are being called the n-word regularly although that did happen but it's these more subtle everyday um, touching of the hair just a reminder of, of the the hierarchies within the school and who has power to to control the bodies of others. Um, and there's, there's one one person talks of, of his hair being likened to worms, um, and you know he was really proud of his hair and the particular hairstyle he had at the time. And I think he, his mother had even um, had uh, had done this braiding for him. Um, and it was just likened to a worm within the school. And, and that really had an impact on, on his sense of his position within the school. But I think the, the ability to identify this as racism rather, rather as something that's race neutral um, really enables the men to start to uh, demonstrate their post-racial resilience to show the post-racial to be a myth and to show what their interlocutors are engaging in to be underpinned by by racist ideas. I mean, a, a, another thing that's important there, um, and, and I guess the kind of the underpinning of racist ideas is these are black mixed-race men and masculinity matters. And earlier on in the book, you know, you, you kind of give examples actually, and again, of this, this sort of dual process of how on the one hand, 
you know, there's kind of a set of stereotypes and assumptions, uh, some of which are, you know, deeply kind of, um, and, and obviously racist, you know, particularly the kind of monstrous black man. Um, but some of them seem to offer, you know, I guess a kind of, whether you'd call it a form of capital or, you know, advantages for dating or whatever, but still even the more neutral ones are, are underpinned actually by these uh, racist assumptions and, and are sites in which we can examine um, what you've described earlier as, you know, the kind of the changing uh, and more subtle manifestations of, of racism. So I wonder if you, you could talk a bit about masculinity and, and men and, and <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's yeah. Um, so, so the men central to their what I, what I refer to as post-racial resilience is this set this double consciousness, this understanding how you're seen through the eyes of society, and particularly through the eyes of white society and those in positions of power. And I think. Within this, the men were always aware that the way they were seen was not only shaped by their racialization, but also their gender. So they were seen as, well, firstly, they often felt that they were seen as, seen as black and that their, their mixedness was erased, but they were, they were never just seen as black. They were seen as black men. Not only that, but they were seen through the prism of what white society believes black men to be. And often that, that is something quite monstrous, something criminal and deviant. And the, the men were aware of this and saw this as a consequence of their particular race and gender position. So the double consciousness is the first phase and it allows them awareness. And then we might think about how they respond. Um, and sometimes I, I draw on George Yancey for this idea of the black monster, um, the criminal, deviant, scary, um, animalistic black monster. So the men were aware that this stereotype was applied to them. And whilst oftentimes, as I think people would expect, they, they engage in social acts to move away from that stereotype. Other times they, they saw it, as, as you alluded to in your question, as a site of capital. It had value for them. So if we think in terms of protection from racism in the, in, in the peer culture of the school, um, to perform this monster, to utilise this stereotype of the monster, enabled... Um, some of the men to defend themselves from racism. Uh, their white peers were scared of this monster and it therefore offered protection from racist bullying. In other instances, um, the men really engaged in acts to show that they weren't this monster, that they weren't this stereotype, um, uh, that they would... They would behave, you know, what one person talks about making his body seem a little bit smaller and talking in a softer voice so as not to, so as to distance himself from this negative stereotype. Um, 
So the so the men are constantly manipulating white society's ideas, either by playing into them for certain gains or distancing it themselves from certain gains. Um, and also in terms of masculinity within within the peer culture. It was often black mixed race men often felt that they were very popular with um, girls and women at the school. And this had given the kind of heterosexual um, culture within the, the school. This had a lot of value to be seen as desirable to girls, to be seen as sexually active and um, sexually attractive offered a lot of value and that transcended to relationships with other men and boys as well. Um, and, and that was a form of capital from their particular intersection of race and gender that the men often exercised. Um, and, and I think this, that it was often understood to link to peer culture. So the men, they made reference to people like uh, Drake and Chris Brown, who, were popular at the time and relatively light-skinned. Um, so a, there was a lot of value taken from that. Of course, you know, not all of the men that that I spoke to were heterosexual, so that raised particular um, a particular set of issues or circumstances there. Not all of the men were able or willing to to play into these kind of heterosexual rituals of getting girls to position themselves in a certain way within the school. Um, but I think, I think my main point would be that the men were able to understand the forces that were at play, particularly at the race, at the intersection of race and gender, despite the deniability of race. And they were able to respond they, they responded in a range of different ways, but they were they were able to respond and show some agency. I mean, you, you mentioned you know, friendship groups and, and relationships, and, and and this this is where I guess the book sort of comes to to its conclusion. And actually, I was I was really struck um, by the fact that you'd included that um, almost the idea of you know sort of uh, race playing a kind of a regulatory role in uh, familial and, and, and friendship spaces, you know, that um, friendship groups would be supportive, but actually, you know, they, they, they could be uh, problematic as well. Um, and I'm interested to hear, like, I suppose as, as much, you know, what's the story of uh, families and friendship groups, but, but also like why you were particularly interested in, um, you know, sort of highlighting that um, at, at the close of the book. Yeah. Um, so in, in terms of the peer groups first, I think, again, it's across the participants I spoke to, they had a range of different peer groups. Those that the majority were part of black male peer groups within the schools. Um, and within these peer groups, there was often a sense that that the group offered protection within the school. It offered protection from racism, also a site of a site that could enhance their popularity and where they could develop a, a sense of camaraderie and a, a place for 
mutual support. And I think there's often there's a an assumption in some of the literature that within these groups, mixed race people are often placed to the sideline. They are seen to be not black enough. So I talk about this regulatory ideal of blackness as as being what organizes the group. So the, the closer one is to this regulatory ideal, the more central they are to the group. And the regulatory ideal, and borrowing here from people like Patricia Hill Collins, is is uh, someone who's black, dark-skinned, working class, uh, and male. But I, I try to show that within these peer groups, although mixedness or lighter skin might place my participants closer to the margins, that this is a constant site of negotiation. So... Um, it's what I'm trying to show is mixedness is not the only factor. And one participant talked about his group of black friends. Um, and he says that they, they're kind of within the group, they were just seen as a black group. So although he was the mixed kid, another friend was the African kid as in African born. The other one was the one from the Caribbean. Um, and he, he also says that one was the, the actual black kid, and by this he means the African-American black kid within the group. So African-American obviously is seen as the regulatory ideal here, but there's a kind of equalizing. You know, mixedness is not the only factor, but whether one's nationality, one's social class, and all these social processes are ongoing within the group. And often uh, people found ways to place themselves within the peer group, whether it was they might have vast knowledge of black or African histories, and that was a way of them performing and, and showing their blackness and their authenticity within the group. Um, so, so my key point really is that there are constant sites of negotiation and social processes and um they're, they're not fixed entity with mixed race people at the margins. Again, the, I mentioned the um, heterosexual attractiveness, the or perceived heterosexual attractiveness of mixed race men. Again, this and, and this was in comparison to the black monoracial black male peers as well. That mixed race men were seen as the most desirable, and of course, this gave them a certain sense of legitimacy and authority within the peer groups. Um, so there, there's, there's an awful lot going on and a lot being negotiated. But these, these groups really did offer, for some, a place of solace where they, um, where they, they could uh, explore their sense of identity, but also withstand some of the wider pressures within the school. Um, and um, you know some of the some of the men actively sought this out. Some of them went into different areas where they knew they would find more um, black peers of their age to become friends with because they felt more far more comfortable in black peer groups than than they often did in groups with their white peers. And of course, it's, I, I don't want to generalise too much. There were others who 
had relatively mixed friendships groups and sometimes that was predicated along the lines of the, the sets within their schools. So, for example, if there were some of the men who were in the higher sets within their year and that meant that given the way that race and racism operate in schools, that there were very few black or black mixed race peers in their sets. So uh, they spent most of their time in, in racially mixed groups. And then again, there were others who saw themselves as being able to move between these groups. So they, they, they identified that the cafeteria at lunchtime was relatively divided along racial lines, but they felt they had particular adaptability uh, and, and popularity to move freely between these groups. Um, I mean, you, you asked sorry, yeah, family as well. I can talk about family if you want. Yeah, yeah, that, that'd be a good way to, uh, to to round up the discussion of the book. Yeah, so again, a, a key reason I wanted to focus on family is the mixed race families are often stereotyped as being sites of a clash of culture, uh, being fraught with difficulty and having a whole host of, of problems. And, you know, this is in the past, it's impacted upon social services and just the very nature of the way we do, uh, the way we understand mixed race families uh, and mixed race relationships. And, I felt from the outset that this didn't reflect my mixed race family and it didn't reflect some of the mixed race families that I grew up with. So I wanted to try and respond to that a little bit. Um, I I don't want to overstate this, but a lot of the men that I spoke to, they saw their family as a very, very supportive space for them, as a place that they could they could turn to for support from race and racism in society. And importantly, I think this didn't always just come from the black parents. There were a number of the participants spoke about having white parents who were incredibly conscious of issues of race and racism. A lot of them had come to be incredibly conscious because they had experienced what what some call rebound racism, that experienced and witnessed racism through being with a black parent and having mixed race children. Um, so, it, so there was support within the family, often from black parents, but also from white parents as well. Um, and a lot of the men, the men that I spoke to were felt that they were able to engage in a, in the different cultural aspects of their identities. So rather than being stuck between these cultures, they felt and they often said that they had the best of both worlds. They were able to be culturally omnivorous. Um, So often, yeah, families, a site of strength. Of course, not without difficulties. There, There were some that spoke about a sense of frustration that their white parent didn't fully understand their experiences of race and racism. They didn't see things the same way that they and their parent with lived experience of racism did. But by and large, um, I think it's important to recognize that these families are not 
spaces fraught with difficulty and problems. Not inherently so, anyway. Um, and it, one other point in terms of the family was a, a site of frustration. Uh, frustrations often came far more so from outside. So some of the men spoke of frustration at their their family being denied. So um, one man in particular spoke about walking through town with his white mother and people assuming that he was adopted, that that wasn't his biological mum and his mum getting texts asking who's that black boy that you're with. Uh, and that really hurt and delegitimized mixed race families for some of the participants. Um, but again, it's important to, to recognize that that came from outside rather than within the family. Um, and it, it probably is a reflection of the, the ways that mixedness is erased, the ways that we only, or mixed race people are often seen as monoracially black and seen to come from two black parents. One of the things you mentioned a couple of times is, is the idea that there's like, there's a lot going on. Um, and a really good academic book always leaves you with that sense of like, you know, here's an agenda that, you know, there's like a whole load of new research uh, we could be building on. And so, so what, what's the sort of the next step after this book? Uh, you know, more stuff in terms of, say, gender and sexuality, masculinity, families, familial relationships. Uh, you mentioned, you know, omnivorousness in terms of um, kind of engaging with different uh, cultures. Um, or are you doing something completely different? Well, um, some of that really important work is being done. I mentioned earlier that Caris Campion and Chantal Lewis are doing important work on the role of place in mixed-race lives and mixed-race families, and I think that will probably be a really important um, antidote to work like mine that, that probably overgeneralizes and takes for granted aspects of place. But I, th- I think that's that's the nature of any emergent field of critical mixed race studies is. Um, for, for my own research, so I'm only a few years out of my PhD and I came out of the PhD and finished this book that was my PhD with a bit of a sense of excitement and wanted to take on absolutely everything. <laughs> so I'm just... Uh, juggling um, juggling that at the moment but one of the projects related to mixedness that I'm working on is I'm looking at mixed race lives in contemporary Ghana which um, which is really really interesting because a lot of the mixed race studies literature is centered on the US to a lesser extent the UK and certain parts of the Caribbean Um, but majority black nations like Ghana are often left out of the conversation. Um, and I think I think it is going to be really interesting to look at some of the assumptions we've made about mixed race lives and see how they play out in, in spaces like Ghana. Um, and I think it also gives a really interesting window into the way whiteness operates uh, still operates in post-colonial spaces like Ghana. When I when I've been there, um, 
unequivocally red as white. I'm not even... Whereas here, growing up, I was often regarded as black and sometimes mixed race. Um, in Ghana, there's there's not a question that I could be mixed race. I'm just seen as white. So I think that's really, really interesting in terms of, firstly, just demonstrating how race is socially constructed. But also with that comes a range of um, privileges that, that uh, for me as a visitor there are deeply uncomfortable but a range of privileges that need to be recognized and explored so yeah that's the that's the project that i'm working on at the moment